Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is pediatrician and vaccine scientist, Dr. Peter Hotez. Let's just get right down to brass tacks. How do vaccines for infectious diseases work? Uh, well, vaccines work by stimulating the immune system to produce either antibodies or immune cells in order to fight infection. So let me give you an example. Um, the polio vaccine. The polio vaccine uh, is made by either work, you working with the actual polio virus that's either inactivated or killed uh, using various substances or passage several times through cells in the laboratory in order to weaken it so that when an individual gets the polio vaccine, they're getting a, a weakened version of the virus or a killed version of the virus. That stimulates an immune response, but it protects you against getting real polio as you go about your day-to-day uh, -day activities. Uh, same with uh, the, the measles virus vaccine. So the measles uh, virus is one of the great killers of children globally. Uh, at one time, 2.6 million children died every year of measles. The virus uh, was weakened in the laboratory, and then you administer that weakened virus so you don't actually get measles, but it protects you from getting measles in the future. Then there are other vaccines that uh, work either they're, they're developed through genetic engineering, like some of the vaccines we're developing, are uh, recombinant protein vaccines done through engineering, so it, it encodes a part of the organism. So, it, so the, the bottom line is vaccines are either the entire organism that's weakened or killed or a part of the organism to stimulate an immune response and prevent you from getting infected. How do vaccines work on a community level? Well, what happens is if you vaccinate large populations at the same time, you can actually interrupt transmission of the disease. So, for instance... Uh, with the measles vaccine, and today we combine the measles vaccine with the mumps vaccine and the rubella vaccine. That's why we call it MMR. That MMR vaccine, if given to more than 90 or 95 percent of the population, will actually stop the possibility of any transmission of real measles virus circulating in the community. Sometimes we refer to this as herd immunity, and um, it's, it's very effective. It also means, though, that if you want to stop these diseases from returning, you know, we eliminated measles in the year 2000. If you want to stop it from returning, we have to have 90 to 95 percent of the local population uh, vaccinated. And that's why measles now has come back in 2019. We've had more than 1,000 measles cases in America. It's because we have uh, large pockets in the United States now where significant numbers of kids are not getting their MMR vaccine, and that leaves an opening for the real measles virus to come back. So we don't have the whole herd That's right. Protected. So that Well, nationally, we're still doing pretty well, but in places uh, such as Brooklyn, New York, or in Portland, uh, Oregon, or even some cities here in Texas, uh, such as Austin and Plano, Texas, we have significant pockets where there's uh, measles either has come back or there's a high likelihood it will come back. How has the advent of vaccines changed healthcare in America? Well, it's uh, made us less fearful of deadly infectious diseases. So, for instance, if you were a parent 
uh, in the United States in the late 1940s, early 1950s. We had terrible polio epidemics in our cities uh, every summer uh, because the polio virus thrives most in the summer so that parents lived in fear that their children would become paralyzed or even die from polio. And now parents no longer have to live with that fear. So uh, our modern vaccines really came online beginning in the late 50s and going into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. And now we have uh, several vaccines so that parents no longer have to worry about their children dying of these diseases. I'll give you a very personal example. Uh, when I was a pediatric house officer, a resident in Boston, I was on the children's service of the Massachusetts General Hospital. We were admitting a child every couple of weeks with a devastating infection called H. flu meningitis, Haemophilus influenza type B meningitis. It has the word influenza in it because back in 1918, when during the flu pandemic, people erroneously thought that bacteria was the cause of flu. It wasn't, but the name is stuck. Instead, it causes a terrible form of uh, meningitis. And I would, as a pediatric resident, I would admit a child every two weeks uh, to my to my service with that devastating disease. And, it would, and some children actually perished. They died. Uh, others were permanently injured, neurologic injury, deafness. It was really devastating and took a big emotional toll not only on the families but also the house staff as well. And then, uh, and that was in the late 1980s, but then the new vaccine came online, the H flu vaccine called the HIB vaccine, HIB, and uh, as a consequence of that, the disease disappeared from the United States. So that by the time I was a young assistant professor of pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine, the disease was no longer around. So I would teach the next generation of house staff, pediatric residents, about Hib disease purely for historic interests. Just like the old timers would talk to me in Mass General about diphtheria and tetanus, I could tell them the same tales about Hib disease. That, that's the power of a vaccine. It's, it's remarkable. Is, uh, has that same sort of effect been seen on a global level? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the, the big push really started in the year 2000 uh, when uh, new organizations were created, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and their big first tranche of money, $750 million, went towards forming what's known as GAVI, the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunization. And the idea was we could do better vaccinating the world's children against diseases like Hib and measles and uh, and diphtheria and polio, and at the same time introduced two new vaccines for rotavirus infection and pneumococcal pneumonia and meningitis. And we've made great strides, great progress. So now what we've seen is uh, at that time in 2000, roughly half a million kids were dying every year of measles. Mm. For the first time in 2017, it decreased below 100,000. So still a lot of kids dying. But, you know, 80, 90 percent reductions in deaths from diseases like measles and Hib and uh, pertussis, which is whooping cough. So that's of tremendous excitement. You founded the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. What constitutes neglected tropical disease? So the term neglected tropical diseases or NTDs uh, is a term that we help shape. Uh, coined and shaped the framework for in the early 2000s. 
and it had to do with the fact that uh, there was a lot of excitement because of Gavi for childhood infections as well as some other diseases like HIV, AIDS, and malaria. But there was a whole group of other infectious diseases that literally got named other diseases uh, as part of the UN Millennium Development Goals. And having something called other diseases was a non-starter. Nobody was going to get very excited. So a group of us who worked on chronic and debilitating parasitic diseases like hookworm infection and schistosomiasis and leishmaniasis and Chagas disease got together and went about and did a branding exercise called the neglected tropical diseases. And we, we came down, a group of us came down from Washington, D.C. to Houston to Baylor College of Medicine to form a whole school around these poverty-related diseases, and it's called the National School of Tropical Medicine. Uh, which is uh, pioneering innovations for these diseases with a big focus on developing vaccines. So the, because these are poverty-related diseases, they only occur among the world's poorest people, uh, you can't make money on these vaccines. So there was no point in trying to create a company uh, around it. So we're doing it in the nonprofit sector uh, funded by external grants. And uh, now we've advanced several vaccines into clinical trials for neglected tropical diseases. We're, we're quite excited about that. Are there neglected tropical diseases in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we first looked at this framework of neglected tropical diseases. The focus was very much Africa, Asia, and the poorest parts of Latin America. But then by moving to Houston and Texas, we started looking around and found a depth and breadth of poverty here that we never knew existed. And one of the things that I've learned over the years, wherever there's extreme poverty, you find neglected tropical diseases. We began to look with our faculty. And, uh, and what we have found is impressive. We have found a transmission of uh, Chagas disease, which is a parasitic infection of the heart. Uh, we found uh, viruses transmitted by mosquitoes. Everyone knows about West Nile virus infection, but we have dengue fever transmission in Texas, as well as even some Zika transmission in 2016 and 2017. Uh, we have uh, typhus, which is a serious uh, rickettsial infection uh, transmitted by fleas. Uh, we have parasitic worm infection. So the point being, we made the case that Texas is actually a disease endemic country because we have the confluence of a number of factors that, that help to uh, help neglected tropical diseases emerge everywhere. So we have the confluence of extreme poverty and low quality housing and lack of access to good clean water or sanitary services, but also climate change is affecting our state. Uh, together with human migrations and aggressive urbanization. And all of those are creating the perfect storm to allow neglected tropical diseases to form. So we're actually now have taken on one of these here in Texas for a vaccine. So we're developing now a vaccine for uh, Chagas disease. This is uh, done in partnership with my long-term collaborator, Mary Elena Patazzi, who's also a professor of the National School of Tropical Medicine and the Associate Dean of our school. What happens when a new outbreak comes on the scene, um, an Ebola virus, uh, Zika? Uh, well, you know, what happens when a new pathogen is introduced to a community, in many cases, they've never experienced disease with that pathogen before. So they're what's said to be immunologically naive. They have no antibodies or other immune defenses against those organisms, and they can spread through a community very quickly. 
Uh, we saw this with Zika in uh, 2016 uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere, where Zika affected large segments of the population in Brazil, and then it moved up into Venezuela and Colombia, into Central America, and then into the Caribbean. So the island of Puerto Rico got hit very hard with Zika virus infection, and it caused a not only debilitating illness, but also birth defects uh, as well. And so we saw lots of babies born with congenital Zika syndrome, uh, which includes a small head microcephaly. It's a very devastating condition. So there was a lot of worry that uh, South Texas and South Florida were vulnerable because of that confluence of the things we're talking about, poverty and climate change and human migrations. And sure enough, we did have some Zika transmission in, in South Texas. Not as bad as we had feared, uh, but we'll see. Zika still could come back. How are new vaccines for new diseases developed? Well, we go through uh, quite a lengthy process. So one of the unique features about our vaccine center at the National School of Tropical Medicine uh, and it's, it's done as a partnership with Texas Children's Hospital, that's, we call it the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, is we'll often take a vaccine all the way from discovery through scale-up process development and manufacture. We then do uh, uh, shepherd the vaccine along for what's called toxicology testing and moving it into the clinic by filing an investigational new drug application with the Food and Drug Administration, an IND, and then getting permission to move into clinical trials, and we'll take it through clinical trials as well. So it's a unique facility, especially for an academic health center. Not many academic health centers have the ability to, take, to translate, and that's the, the term that's often used now, to translate a molecule or a vaccine all the way from discovery into, uh, into clinical development. So we're very excited about that. How is vaccine science adapting and innovating for the future? Well, there's a few things that have to happen. One of the problems are, are the timelines are long, right? So for instance, the hookworm vaccine that is now in clinical trials in Africa and Latin America I started working on that vaccine as an MD-PhD student in the 1980s. So uh, these, these are of biblical time frames, right? And it could be 30 years. The schistosomiasis vaccine is a little faster. We started working that in the early 2000s. So there's a need for innovation to streamline the development. Um, it's, but it's not easy because remember how vaccines work. We're often immunizing well individuals to prevent them from getting uh, these infections. So the safety bar has to be very high and pristine. And so these vaccines have to go through a lot of safety testing, first on preclinical laboratory animal models, and then the slowly graded clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. That's why I'm often uh, aghast when I hear the anti-vaccine lobby claim that vaccines are not adequately safety tested. These 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 products are the most extensively safety-tested pharmaceuticals on the planet, uh, often taking decades of, of, of clinical uh, testing. Uh, but we're trying to now look at some cutting-edge biotechnologies and apply them to our neglected disease pathogens for purposes of vaccine development. Uh, many And a lot of that work is going on here at Baylor College of Medicine, things like uh, uh, single-cell RNA sequencing or systems biology, 
or uh, gene editing. And so we're trying to apply all those technologies uh, to our vaccines. But we also need innovation in how we do clinical testing to maybe do more things in parallel so we don't have this decade, several decades of uh, clinical testing. We could streamline that down a few years. Why are outbreaks of nearly eradicated diseases taking place in 2019? So isn't it terrible? Um, we've seen now the return of measles in 2019, and, and we know why. Um, it's happened because there's been decline, local declines in vaccine coverage in, in many counties in the U.S. So um, measles is often the first one to come back because it's the most highly transmissible of of the viruses that we know about. It has what's called a reproductive number of 12 to 18. That means if a single individual has measles, on average 12 to 18 other people will get it, particularly infants under the age of 12 months not yet old enough to get vaccinated. And that happens because the virus lingers in the atmosphere, lives on surfaces. So it's very easy to acquire measles. And now measles is back in the United States. We eliminated it in 2000. And we've, uh, we're going on 20 years, and now we've had more than 1,000 cases. So that's, that's very discouraging. And it's happened, number one, due to declines in local vaccine coverage. And that, in turn, has happened because of the rise of a very aggressive, well-organized, and well-funded anti-vaccine movement uh, that we now have here in the United States that's convinced parents that va vaccines cause autism and, and, and other things, which is absolutely not true. But what the anti-vaccine lobby has done is to create an impressive, in a bad sense, a misinformation campaign. So we have this tragic situation now in the state of Texas where there's over 60,000 kids not getting their vaccines. And so it's only a matter of time before we, our state suffers from measles outbreaks, just like we've seen in, in New York State this year and in Washington State earlier this year. Your most recent book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, draws on your personal life and your connection to current misconceptions about vaccines. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, and I wrote the book in part because of what I saw happening in Texas with this, this dramatic rise in the number of kids not getting their vaccines. Uh, I'm a vaccine scientist and pediatrician, but I'm also, with my wife Anne, we're parents of four adult children, including Rachel, who has, is 26 years old and has autism and a number of uh, intellectual disabilities. And because the anti-vaccine lobby uh, centers their misinformation around the phony claim that vaccines cause autism, I felt I was perfectly positioned to stand up to this. And uh, wrote the book, uh, as, as it's called, uh, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. came out late last year, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And uh, what it does is it goes into some detail explaining the evidence showing there's absolutely no link between vaccines and autism, but also explaining what autism is um, and how we've identified more than 99 genes involved in early fetal brain development uh, that are linked to autism. And one of the things that we were able to do here at Baylor College of Medicine with the, gene with the excellent genetics department here is do whole exome sequencing on, on Rachel and uh, my wife and I, and we were able to identify one of those genes. So it's, it's very powerful technology, the point being the, uh, the processes that result in autism are happening in early fetal brain development well before kids ever see vaccines, which not only 
there was so the book really explains the evidence not only that vaccines don't cause autism but the lack of plausibility because of the fact that autism is beginning is is already underway in pregnancy well before kids are ever vaccinated why do you think there is such distrust between the scientific community and the lay population when it comes to vaccines well you know we've we've got a situation is Part of the reason why the anti-vaccine movement is allowed to gain ascendancy is because they're running unopposed, that they're not being, uh, the scientific community has been mostly invisible or silent. And that's the reason why I wrote the book. And and part of, the, one of the things I realized, both working on the book and being out there in the public defending vaccines, is that we don't hear from our scientists, that our science, scientific community is very focused on writing and speaking for each other and uh, focusing on grants and papers and, and laboratory meetings. And they know that we no longer see uh, public engagement uh, as, as a worthwhile activity, or we don't even know how to start engaging the, engaging the public. And I don't have a lot of evidence to support it, but there are some interesting studies like that were done by Research America, a policy group think tank in, in Washington, that finds that 81% of Americans cannot name a living scientist. Mm. And uh, so essentially the, the, the American public has uh, really no idea of, of, of what we do and what our activities are like. And I partly blame our profession on that, that we're, we're too inward looking and we don't see public engagement as a vital activity. So I've been writing and speaking about the importance of building in science communication into PhD training. Uh, building health communication into medical training, both at the doctoral level and the postdoctoral or residency level, uh, we've got to figure out how to turn this around and get the scientific get the scientific community out there and engage, so that people recognize scientists and uh, and so scientists again become a household term. Almost having to re. Uh reclaim your uh, authority, re redevelop confidence in, in the public. That, that, that's absolutely right, because right now the public uh, has no role models to identify. When was the last time you saw a scientist on, on cable news or, uh, you know, really profiled in the media? I mean, I think Baylor College of Medicine does a pretty good job getting our scientists out there, but we don't have the bandwidth needed to really uh, match the bandwidth of this very aggressive, well-oiled anti-vaccine lobby and its 500 websites all amplified on social media and e-commerce platforms. What questions should people ask their healthcare providers when it comes to vaccines? Well, I think it's important to remember that you have an expert in your community, and that expert's called your pediatrician. Pediatricians uh, spend a lot of their training learning about vaccines, how to administer vaccines, how to use vaccines, how to schedule vaccines. And so take advantage of uh, having a pediatrician in your community and, and have that conversation with them. Uh, there's certainly other sources of vaccine information. Uh, the CDC website, the Centers for Disease Control website, has got some good information. But the problem is it's a little hard to mine. It's, it's a very dense website. Uh, I think that's one of the other lessons that we're seeing from this aggressive rise of the anti-vaccine movement, that we don't, we don't have easy-to-deliver information uh, for, for parents. That's one of the reasons I also, in the book, in the epilogue of, of the book, I list the major uh, 
uh, phony assertions of the anti-vaccine lobby and talking points to provide the, in quick time the information needed to counter uh, the misinformation. We seem to be losing the battle against this anti-vaccine lobby, and I think we've now got to take steps to counter it. And uh, I, I have a few ideas of what I think we need to do. I think one, for instance, in state like te- states like Texas, we have to close vaccine loopholes. Uh, right now, uh, if you're a parent, you can opt your kid out of getting vaccinated for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. I'd like to shut that down. I'd like to make vaccines compulsory. If you want to send your child to public school, in the past, your child had to be vaccinated. I'd like to bring that back, um, and as well as in the 18 other states that allow non-medical exemptions for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. This was done in California. California allowed vaccine exemptions. They had a horrific measles epidemic in 2014, 2015. The California legislature said, we're not going to do this anymore, and they shut down the non-medical vaccine exemptions. We need to do the same in Texas as well as a number of other states in the U.S. But that's not going to win hearts and minds. So we're going to have to figure out, one, how to rebuild a system of uh, robust vaccine advocacy in this country. But at the same time, we have to dismantle a lot of the misinformation. So it'll take time, but I think it's doable. I think we can bring us back to the old normal. Not the, So the new normal is uh, parents aren't vaccinating their kids. We've got to flip that, uh, flip that around, go back to the future, as they say, and, and make vaccination the new normal again. Thank you for tuning into Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for our next episode where we'll talk with Dr. Sharmila Ananda Sabapathy about how technology is changing global health. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There, you can find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a healthcare professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care.